Houston, we have a podcast. Welcome to the official podcast of the NASA Johnson Space Center, episode 256, Leading the Space Coast. I'm Gary Jordan, and I'll be your host today. On this podcast, we bring in the experts, scientists, engineers, astronauts, leaders, all to let you know what's going on in the world of human spaceflight. On June 20th, 2021, Janet Petro was named as the 11th director of the Kennedy Space Center, becoming the first woman to be selected as director in the center's history. Before NASA, Janet began her career in the U.S. Army after earning a Bachelor of Science in Engineering from the U.S. Military Academy at West Point, New York. During her high school years, military academies had just opened for women to enroll. Seizing the opportunity, Janet's class became the second class of women ever to graduate from West Point. After college, she then went on to receive her master's in business administration from Boston University Metropolitan College. She has received numerous awards, including the 2022 Dr. Kurt H. Debus Award by National Space Club Florida Committee and her contributions to America's aerospace efforts. And uh, she also received the 2019 Samuel J. Hyman Service to America Sammy's Management Excellence Medal. She also is the recipient of a President's Distinguished Executive Award and has received the astronaut-selected Silver Snoopy Award for outstanding performance for contributing to flight safety and mission success. In 2018, Janet was chosen by Florida Governor Rick Scott to be inducted into Florida's Women's Hall of Fame. Janet has created an enormous impact on the space program and community, leading Kennedy Space Center into a new era of collaboration and innovation. Serving as a role model for her children and women across the world, her goal is to inspire young girls to follow their dreams and always strive for success, no matter the obstacles that might stand in the way. Today on the podcast, Janet will be looking back on her first year as director of the Kennedy Space Center, her years leading up to uh, this first year, and the plans she has moving forward for the future of human spaceflight. With that, let's get right into it. Enjoy. Janet Petro, thank you so much for coming on Houston. We have a podcast today. Hey, thanks, and I'm super excited to be here, Gary. Fantastic. You, uh, you've been in this role for a year now. Congratulations. How, how are you feeling after your anniversary? Yeah, so I will tell you, it has been quite a whirlwind uh, over the past year. You know, came on during the pandemic, yeah. um, facing the challenge of really leading mostly a remote workforce. And I will tell you, one of my biggest fears was I didn't want to be the first uh, uh, virtual center director in the history of the Kennedy Space Center. <laughs> really wanted to get that behind us. Um, but also, as you know, it's also been one of the busiest times in the center's history. Mm -hmm. And I've talked to uh, lots of people, um, both from the past and here currently, that just say we have never been as busy as we are um, at the center with all the activities going on, everything from, of course, the uh, Artemis uh, activities, the commercial crew activities, um, and then as we look to the future and all the commercial partners operating out of here. So it really, really is a, a busy time. And I will say I'm just super proud 
of the entire team who has been working all of those NASA uh, programs and working with our commercial partners to make it successful. So feeling feeling pretty good, although it's been, it has flown by, I will tell you that. <laughs> I bet. Awesome. Yeah, lots going on at the Kennedy Space Center. I want to definitely dive into that and then, of course, go into your ambitions for the future. But but let's, uh, let's take it a step back first and learn a little bit about you and a little bit about the Kennedy Space Center as well. I want to start with you, though. Um, you, in your early childhood. I wonder if you had some spark of inspiration for for STEM, for engineering, for the Army, because I know that's where, eventually where you ended up and started pursuing, um, you know, your your continued education, so you ultimately ended up at NASA. But, but I wonder if there was some spark early in your childhood that sort of led you down that path. Well, um, Gary, you know, I'll say uh, my path to the Kennedy Space Center in NASA was a little bit unusual, um, but I did grow up here on the Space Coast, and my father um, came down, moved our entire family down to the to Florida uh, in the early 60s during the early days of the space program. So even as a young child, I very vividly remember um, going to the beach uh, with my brothers and sisters or coming out to the Kennedy Space Center to watch some of the uh, early launches and my my father went through the the Mercury, the the Gemini, um, and then on the Apollo uh, program, um, and then worked on the shuttle program. So I would say that being um, space and launches were always a, a part of my mm. uh, life. In fact, one of my most um, vivid memories is um, uh, watching the uh, launch of the first STS roll out of the uh, VAB um, back in 1981 when I was at college uh, during my spring break. So I would say my spark came. Um, initially from my dad. I did not really know what uh, engineering was, um, but as I was going through high school and the military academies opened up their doors to women, I became interested for a whole host of reasons, um, and I was accepted uh, and and eventually graduated in uh, 1981, um, and the branch I selected was uh, aviation and flew helicopters uh, in the um, in the Army for about um, five years before I decided to, to come back to my roots and be an engineer and work um, with commercial companies um, uh, in the space uh, in the space industry, I had a variety of uh, customers, whether it was Department of Defense, we had some NASA customers, we had some commercial customers. Um, before I came to NASA in two thousand and seven as the uh, deputy director, um, at the Kennedy Space Center. So it really was full circle. Mm. And as I said, it was a little bit unusual because a lot of um, a lot of people at NASA start their career as an intern, and then they stay with um, the federal agency NASA for all of their career. What I like to say why my path was a little bit different and unique is along the way, I had many diverse experiences in the military, in commercial companies, both large, both small, um, supporting a variety of different customers, whether it was NASA itself, whether it was, again, the Department of Defense, and in particular, the uh, Air Force or the commercial industry. And so I had that broad experience that I brought to the table when I came here as the uh, deputy director back in um, back in 2007. And then, of course, as you, as you mentioned, I was deputy and then I became center director last year. So my path was, uh, was a little bit different, mm. a little bit unusual, but I think um, the breadth and the depth of my um, diverse experiences is what I was bringing to the table. Perfect. Yeah, let's 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 dive in and explore that a little. 
little bit to figure out exactly sort of, you know, along that path, along that that uh, that a little bit different path, what eventually, um, you know, led you to where you are. I want to go back to your father for a second. You said you moved down for in to Florida and, and your father. It sounds like he was working for NASA. Did you guys move specifically to work at Kennedy? Yes. So my my father actually worked for the Chrysler Corporation Mm. um, in Michigan, which is where uh, most of my um, siblings were born. And in the early 60s, of of course, as uh, uh, President Kennedy had given that um, uh, speech about going back to the moon and really the space industry was picking up with the test programs, they looked across the uh, industrial base for... um, like uh, like things. So an automobile and Chrysler, you know, how do you build a, a console that astronauts could operate? Um, so he came down originally with Chrysler. Um, he eventually worked for um, Rockwell, Col- Rockwell um, and then um, he ended his uh, career with uh, Lockheed Martin. Um, so he was a contractor supporting the NASA programs um, during his tenure here. Mm. Did you have anyone in your family that uh, was in the military um, or, or was, you know, what, really what I'm getting at is really what was your drive to to go into the military? Yes, it's, it's interesting. I actually did have a brother who also attended uh, West Point, huh. but nobody else in my military or nobody else in my family had any uh, military background and experience. The the biggest draw for me, um, and and back in those days, I graduated uh, high school back in '77. You know, college was not what it is today, where it was a, a given that everybody who graduated from high school would go on to college, mm. and so. You know, my my um, father worked out uh, as a contractor at the Kennedy Space Center. My mom was a, a stay-at-home mom. I had um, four siblings. We had four children, or five children. Um, and my mom, you know, took care of us. So there wasn't a lot of money um, for, us, for them to send their kids to college. So one of the biggest draws... Um, for me for, uh, to go into the military academy was, uh, you know, and it may sound uh, kind of odd, but um, was like it was um, f- it was free. Um, they did not have to put out any money. The other big thing was um, when I was growing up, I paid, played a lot of sports. I played softball. I was um, a captain of my team. Um, and so I, and I was the oldest daughter. I was the middle child. I had two older brothers and two younger sisters. Mm. Um, but I was always kind of the little leader of my uh, uh, sisters around, and I, <laughs> I got beat up by my brothers. Um <laughs> So I had to learn to fend for myself. So one of the big draws with the military academy was um, just the leadership um, that they um, that they uh, taught. You know, and I used to I loved uh, joking with my former boss uh, Bob Cabana, who graduated from the Naval Academy. That uh, I went to the number one leadership school, <laughs> which was uh, the military academy at West Point. Um, but it was a leadership. It was also um, sports. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, they they uh, promote a lot of sports, a lot of teamwork, um, and in addition to the excellent uh, academic uh, reputation that they had. And of course, I had very good grades. Um, studied hard going through. Um, Going through high school, I always, uh, I always was a was a very good student, and so all of those things that rounded experience uh, of you know great academics, great uh, uh, sports facilities, and and pro- promotion of sports and and teamwork and the leadership that that was kind of oh and by the way then I 
didn't have to put out any, or my parents didn't have to put out any money for it. All of those things are uh, what kind of drew me to um, the military academy. Got it. Yeah, lots of things going for that, and, and, and very interesting. Now, now at the military academy, there's a lot of things that you can pursue, but you chose aviation and you chose helicopters. I wonder why. Yeah. So. Um, you know, when at the time I was going um, to West Point, it's a little bit changed now, but everybody graduated with a bachelor in science and engineering. Mm. And um, but you got to take there were the core courses that you had to take to achieve that degree. But then you had your optional courses and 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 th- they, you could choose what kind of optional courses. And one of the things that I was interested in was um, the aerospace. So a lot of, you know, a lot of the fluids, um, the, 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 the mechanics um, courses, they kind of attracted me. And so it turned out several of my professors um, that taught those courses also happened to be in the Army themselves, be pilots uh, themselves. And they would take us out to do labs um, out at Fort Stewart up there in New York, and we would actually get to fly in helicopters and do our labs while they were um, while they were flying us around. I'm sure it was a great uh, uh, great uh, thing for them that they got to go fly and bring their classes and get some flight time uh, at the same time that they were teaching uh, the cadets up there. So doing that was very um, is what sparked my uh, passion, if you would if you will, for flying. I was like, boy, okay, if I'm going to go in the army, I want to do something that's really that I can be really passionate about yeah. and 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 super fun. And um, that flying um, is what uh, kind of sparked that in me. And, and fortunately, when I graduated, I was able to pick my um, pick my branch and my location. And so, um, and, and it's a long story, but I became a maintenance test pilot for helicopters and then was um, stationed uh, over in Germany. Um, and during that time, it was uh, near the, um, it was in the middle of the Cold War. So that was a whole great experience for me to be in Europe at a time when there was a, a wall that divided uh, the two pieces uh, uh, of Europe. And um, yeah, it was, it was really, a, really a, a great time. And I will also say that a couple of my professors um, went on to be astronauts um, as hmm. well, which um, in my later life and at my career at uh, NASA, I've been able to reconnect with um, some of those uh, professors um, who really um, inspired me and guided me towards uh, aviation um, in, as my military career. Uh, early on uh, in our chat, Janet, you mentioned um, you mentioned uh, that you know this is about the time where they started, you know, um, where women were becoming more popular in some of these classes. And I wonder, you know, when you were in the military academy, um, what what you know what that was like? Was that did you encounter obstacles along the ga- along the way through your studies to pursue some of these things that you became so passionate about? And what did you do to overcome them? Yeah, so I, I don't know if I mentioned um, the military academies um, were opened up by President Ford in 1975, mm. and so I graduated in high school in 77 mm-hmm. and um, be, uh, entered into the second class that had women in its ranks mm-hmm. in um, at the end of uh, uh, ni- in 1977. So I graduated in the second class of women, and so as you can imagine, um, you know, the first year of women, they were still kind of trying to figure things out. 
a um, little bit better in the second year, and it's um, very different today. The the army, um, the military is different, way different today than it was back then. Um, but I would say, um, my as you can imagine, there were some people uh, at the academy um, at that time, whether it was other cadets or other professors or, you know, just the administration or those within the military who really didn't think that women had a place at the academy. Mm. And likewise, there were um, people who were there to support and mentor and coach and help you to be successful. Um, so my experience was I got both of that, right? I, there were, mm -hmm. there were, I'll call them jerks, uh, who yeah. uh, you could tell were not there supporting and weren't wishing you um, uh, well and success. Um, but there were many others um, that were uh, helping helping you and supporting you in ways um, in ways that uh, uh, would would help you with your success. I would say my classmates, um, most of all, you know, we became very very close. Um, so the class of 1981, I think we're extremely close. Um, the the women in that class, we are very close. Um, we we host uh, uh, women of 1981 reunions, um, and and my class itself hosts many many reunions for which um, I've gone to uh, many of them. Um, and I would say that we we really gelled. Our our motto was uh, strength as one, hmm. um, and we um, gelled together. And I think collectively um, uh, made it through. There is a there is a tremendous uh, dropout rate. I, I'll say around forty percent, um, and mm. it's largely due to academics, which is uh, interesting when you think about West Point. You you might think it might be other things, physical and and whatnot, but mostly it's academics. Um, and fortunately for me, I had. Um, Prepared myself in high school. I'd already taken calculus, so taking some of these courses was uh, was easy for me. But there were there were challenges. Um, you know, we faced uh, you know again faced all the things uh, that you might imagine, where some people you know tried to you know make things harder for you, yelled at you more, made you do things that uh, maybe they wouldn't with other uh, men. But there was there was a good balance. I look back at as my at my West Point experience as one of the um, best, most foundational experience that made me the person I am today. So I learned things like how to be a good team member, how to how to help out my teammates, how not to think just about myself, but about my team. I learned about perseverance and resilience and pushing yourself through things that you did not think you could do, whether it was physically, whether it was, you know, getting yelled at by somebody. Um, I learned about, you know, I talked about leadership. We we talked a lot about leadership and we we had a lot of different roles where you were leading your own classmates or leading um, organizations and entities. And so I look back at that as one of the very best experiences in my life and one that really set me up for the foundations and the principles upon which I have um, set my core values and have lived and tried to live my life. I often I often talk about in, in many um, speeches, you know, West Point's motto of duty, honor, country, and I, I really have adopted that uh, motto as my my own. And I and I talk a lot about that, um, you know, doing your duty, and and it d doesn't mean just you know in the military sense, but um, you do what you say you're going to do, and you are the person that people can depend on. Mm. Um, and honor, if you're not, if you do not act with integrity and people do not respect your integrity and they cannot trust you, you are not, you are nothing in life. And then finally, country, again, it's not just about 
our nation and our country. It's about realizing that there are things bigger than yourself that you should be striving to do. And so those three words really have been um, part of my core values um, that I have adopted and I try to live by. Interesting. I was going to ask you about, you know, I was going to ask you about advice that you start to give to young women that that may be going through some of these same struggles and may want to quit because of this adversity or because of these challenges. But I, I think you you answered a lot of it. I think another key part, and may, maybe it's within some of these core values that you discussed, was one thing that I pulled out was this idea of of community and teamwork. It seems like one of the things that you mentioned was, you know, I think maybe I'm correct. I'm hoping I'm correct in interpreting this is one of the things that sort of helped you through those times was this sense of camaraderie with some of the people that you ended up being with and graduating with and going through those same struggles with. So this idea of of team and community, I think, is, is can be added on or maybe part of one of those core values. Absolutely. You know, wanting to um, be be a part of a team and getting through things together can be one of the most um, motivational and inspirational things. You don't want to be the person that your team, um, that you let down uh, a team. That, can, that, that really can help you through some really, really tough times and, and to persevere and know you, you know, you know how you have others you can lean on and they know that they can lean on you. And when you get to that place with a team, with a group of people, um, it's a, uh, you are way more powerful um, than yourself as an individual. Um, You asked me about other advice I would give girls um, or young women. Mm-hmm. Um, the the one thing I, I do tell them is um, have confidence in yourself. I think when I look back over my life, if the one thing I could change um, or I could that I've learned is I I would have had way more confidence in myself at a much younger age. You know, you always uh, uh, women tend to think that they're not um, worthy, that they're not good enough, that they're not smart enough, that they're, um, you know, they can't do things and that everybody around them is way smarter than them. And I and I and I like to tell them, no, they're not. You are you are as good as them, and you need to think that way and be more confident in, uh, in yourself. And, and I often says, even if you don't think you are, get your head, you know, talk to yourself and get your head into that mindset that when you walk in that room, you have a place at the table that's yours and you own that place and you own that room as much as anybody else in that room, you have a right to be there and be confident in yourself. But it is it is a mental thing, I would say, um, much more than um, much more than you think. It's your 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 mental mindset of how you go into a room and how you talk to people and in 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 the way that you talk to them. And so that, that I try to get young women to think that way, um, and it's hard to do. But it's uh, the one thing I wish I had confidence earlier on. <laughs> Yeah, I, did. I, I love I love this this uh, this advice. I, I do want to revisit a lot of these these key elements as you go through your, your career and some of these you know that that I think may may add to um, what what it, you know your journey to to get you to where you are today. I want to continue with that journey though because uh, we we're, we're talking about the academy. Walk me through some, uh, what you were doing um, when you started flying helicopters and then your transition to after after the military. So I decided to leave the military, um, flew five years. As I mentioned, I was in um, Germany, Mm -hmm. and then I went back to the States, 
And um, I actually had my uh, my uh, first, uh, my, my only son, I should say, had my son. And I decided that I wanted to um, uh, not, I didn't grow up in a military family and I wasn't sure I really wanted to um, follow the, or have my life's journey being moving every couple years. Mm-hmm. And, and, and also um, the... There were not very many um, positions open to women, for example, in combat um, in combat units. Now that all changed in the uh, '90s, um, and and today I think almost all positions are open up. But at that time, all these things kind of factored in uh, family, career, etc. So I decided to leave the uh, military, um, and then I got my um, first job. Well, actually second job. My first job, I was a a GS-12 mechanical engineer uh, in Huntsville, Alabama um, for the Strategic Defense Command. But then McDonnell Douglas uh, came calling, um, recruiting people to come back down to the Space Coast and to do some payload processing out at the um, Space Center. And so that was very attractive to me. Mm -hmm. And so I joined up as an engineer for McDonnell Douglas and and stayed with them, advanced through various positions, mechanical uh, engineer, um, uh, what we called a payload manager, where you led a team of engineers to process a large payload uh, to a program manager. Um, I, I've I stayed with McDonnell Douglas, and I, I joined a couple other companies, um, including a small business, and then um, SAIC, which is a large systems uh, integration uh, company, which is where I was um, before I joined uh, uh, NASA. But during that time, I resided primarily uh, back down here at the Space Coast. Um, where most of my family was located, mm-hmm. although I did have a couple uh, uh, jaunts over to uh, uh, the West Coast uh, working for SEIC for a, a couple years. I see. When the, the move from uh, Marshall to McDonnell Douglas, was it a combination of the work that was attractive and, and the stuff? That, it sounds like you were working on the shuttle uh, through, through McDonnell Douglas and then uh, I guess a combination of that and then returning to the Space Coast. Yeah, it was actually, so I was, Marshall uh, happens to be sitting on the Redstone Arsenal. So when I left the Army, I actually worked for um, the Strategic Defense Command, which was um, uh, DOD uh, also. And then, yeah, the the Space Coast, I came back down to the center. But the, the contract I worked for was not um, directly for NASA. Mm. Um, it was for, it was McDonnell Douglas. McDonnell Douglas did payload processing for the Air Force oh. and they did payload processing for the shuttle. Got so it. my focus was mostly on the um, uh, DOD side, um, which was a super secret satellites that we did processing um, for mm. uh, for the Air Force. Um, but eventually I did, we did process several uh, payloads that eventually ended up on the shuttle. And then I did move over on the um, other McDonnell Douglas side. And I did, I did program management. I did advanced planning. I did bid and proposal, business development activities. So I got a, a pretty broad experience with McDonnell Douglas. So let's explore this uh, this career. You, you mentioned a lot of different places and a lot of different uh, companies that you were working for and, and positions. I wanted to explore this idea of leadership and management within them. I wonder where you started. Were you starting more as uh, you know as an engineer, maybe working with teams and, and and that sort of thing? And then and then tell me about how you started taking on more responsibility and more management roles as you started hopping around. 
Okay. Um, yeah, I started out as a uh, uh, engineer within McDonnell Douglas, mm-hmm. again, mechanical side, just processing payloads. Um, and then there was a position opened up, which I applied for, that you really um, led a team of engineers, so mechanical, software, electrical, um, you know, the quality team, all the, the necessary team that needed to process that payload. So I kind of stepped up to that role. But I would say the biggest... Um, um, probably step into uh, management or a leadership role um, was my boss, um, my big boss at the time, um, asked asked me to go over and be a program manager for this um, for this contract. And again, it was a classified uh, contract, so mm-hmm. I can't really talk much about it. But he asked me to step up and be a program manager, um, which was um, a big step. And I and I remember saying, "Are you are you sure I'm I'm ready for this?" And I was talking with a couple of my um, uh, mentors at the time, uh, and they said, "You know, yeah, he number one, he wouldn't have asked you if he didn't think you could do it, and number two, it really isn't a question. Um, you you know, you're you, you need to step up. This is your next uh, big step in the career." And so I look back at that moment, um, and of course, I did accept and did did go over and do that position, but that was probably pivotal in my journey, if you will, my leadership journey, because stepping up to that program management role, now I became uh, responsible for a much larger team of people. um, And I was responsible for things like what's our vision, what's our strategy, how do we win this next contract? Um, I had to interface um, much more with the uh, large, larger company, you know, so, um, you know, within McDonnell Douglas, you know, you you have, you know, all of your um, enterprises, like your human resources, your, you know, communications, you know, the, the, the big guys. I had to interface regularly with the um, senior leadership team. And so that gave me the visibility and I got to meet um, a lot of different people, many of which I'm still friends with, and they're big leaders in the industry to, uh, today day as well. Um, But that was kind of my first big step into leadership. And I would say I I learned a a heck of a lot along the way. Um, One of the biggest lessons that I recall from that, excuse me, from that program management position, I think I was about a year and a half, two years in, and I asked my boss at the time for some feedback on on how he thought I was doing, um, and and my customer. I had a direct uh, Air Force customer who had really been with this um, uh, contract for a long time. You know, he was a customer to this contract, and he told me he said the biggest difference between you and the guy you replaced is you do something, you take action. Mm. You know, the other guy just sort of was in the position and he really didn't take any action to change um, things to make them better, either for people or for the contract or for the performance uh, of the organization. And he said, you do stuff, you take action. And so I thought that was a really good lesson for me to learn early on. And, you know, as your first, uh, you know, quote, leadership position in uh, private industry, it can be a little scary to kind of take action and you hope it turns out well. Mm-hmm. Um, but getting the direct feedback from the customer that doing something is way preferred to just 
you know, having repeating the same thing year after year after year. So, so I thought that was a great feedback on my leadership journey. So in terms of decision making, when you were approaching, you know, the, this idea of doing something, how did you how did you have the confidence to know that it was the right thing to do, that of all the decisions, of all the things that you could do, that this was the right thing? What gave you the confidence? Yeah, so a couple things I did that as I look back um, – Turned out, turned out to be brilliant. Uh, but <laughs> one of the one of the things um, when I first took over uh, as a program manager is I read the contract. Um, I, I think I, I I told myself every single day you're going to go in and you're going to read that contract, so you know it backwards and forwards. You know exactly what it is that it's expected out of you from the customer, um, and exactly what's in that contract. And that gave me sort of a very firm foundation to be confident that what I was doing was actually what what was uh, allowed and what was desired and what was in the contract telling me to do this. So um, I guess you would call that doing your homework Mm -hmm. um, uh, in some respects. I also talked to a lot of people and got data points from the, you know, the the team that I was leading at the time. What were they thinking? What is it that um, they thought should be changed um, and and what, what should be continued, what should be stopped, and what should be changed. And I took that feedback. And so I think those two things together um, gave me the confidence that what I was doing when I was changing something or making a decision gave me the confidence that um, it was the right uh, the right thing um, to do. The, the other thing, and I just throw this out there because this is kind of a, a personal... Um, a personal mantra of mine, you know, almost anything, any decision you make, um, very, very, very few in life are irreversible, right? I mm. mean, get down to, to uh, brass tacks. Most things that you do are reversible. That is, you can stop, you can change course, you can um, uh, tweak things, um, you can change it. Very, very few things are completely irreversible when you make that decision. So mm. um, that, so, so, Doing something is better than than doing not, nothing is what I like to say, um, but also knowing that um, it isn't, you know, it isn't terminal, you know, so to speak, right. uh, making the decision also, like, I think, helped my confidence. Very interesting. I, it seems like you got the bug, though. When you got, you said you, you were ready to t- take on the challenge um, and you didn't know at first, but you took it on and it seems like you enjoyed it, right? Am, am, I, am I, it seems like, I'm, I feel like that's what I'm interpreting from you is leadership is something you're passionate about. Ab- absolutely, um, and I and I I would call myself a, a servant leader, um, an influence leader. Um, although I you know started out in the military, um, you know just telling people, um, demanding, you know, yelling at them louder is not what builds a team, and not is is not what gets things accomplished. Right. I think um, having to, you know, serve, you know, serving others, that's as a leader, I think I'm serving others, whether it's the organization or the people who are in that organization, that's what you're there to to help to do. And that's why I'm so passionate um, about leadership and seeing what the team can accomplish when they when they get together and talk about things and we develop a vision and we put um, initiatives or activities or actions uh, in place to drive towards that vision and seeing the um, accomplishments of the team. That that to me is leadership, and I am very passionate about that. Very good. Um, 
help me to understand this these when you okay from from this moment where you took on this first leadership position to what led you from from that moment to taking on more and more responsibility until you eventually became Kennedy's deputy director in 2007. Okay, so let me see. Um, I decided, <laughs> I yeah, that's it's like I have a long, like 40 years ago. Um, when I left McDonnell Douglas, um, I actually was recruited by a small business to be a leader uh, in their organization. And I did that for several years, eventually becoming um, like a vice president. Again, it was a small business. I, I could go on and on. Um, it was a family-owned uh, uh, small business, um, uh, 8A uh, small business small disadvantaged business, family run. Fascinating lessons I learned from that experience. Uh, and then from there, I joined um, SAIC, um, worked on um, worked with a couple of very difficult customers and and I will say I learned a lot in that um, in that journey and in those leadership positions um, and I was always I would say from from the moment I left uh, McDonnell Douglas I had I was holding some leadership position in every single position mm -hmm. I took um, so in SEIC I worked um, uh, worked as worked on this particular project was a, was a program manager a division manager um uh, uh for a project I can't really talk very much about <laughs> right. um you know as well and and then um my um one of the and this is probably another leadership lesson um networking um one of the people that I had worked with early in my McDonnell Douglas days um, my path took me to remain in private industry. Um, his path took him to join the ranks of NASA, and then he progressively uh, uh, went up and he became the uh, center director at the Kennedy Space Center. But we kept in touch over the 30-plus years. He went all over. I went all over. Um, and he reached back and he he asked me to apply for this position uh, for to be his deputy. The The timing of it um, you know, the shuttle program had been announced uh, to that it was ending. Mm -hmm. um, and so the landscape at KSC was going to dramatically change in the next uh, few years. And and I, again, um, uh, didn't wasn't sure whether I should apply for that position, whether uh, that was the right um, role for me or I was the right person for the job. Um, but he encouraged me to apply, and I did, and went through the selection and panel process, and um, eventually came on as the uh, deputy director there in 2007. So yeah, and that's that's really where I wanted to pick up was, um, as you mentioned, this was a, this is a very dynamic time and at Kennedy, and I think most visually, I'm sure there's a lot of changes that happen across the whole center, but. 2007, really, you were, like you mentioned, you were nearing the end of the shuttle program, which um, was one of the cornerstones of, of launches from the Kennedy Space Center for uh, what, what, what would be coming up on 30 years. Uh, and then you're transitioning more to, you're seeing more and more commercial launches uh, over the, the 2010s. And I feel like that change just in the that tenure, you know, of like whatever that would be, probably, you know, 10, 15 years until you finally got the um, director position in 2021, Kennedy changed quite a bit. Um, tell me about some of these these big changes and, and, and what you did as the deputy director to navigate Kennedy through this time. Sure. So, um, as I said, we joined in 2007. The uh, shuttle program 
uh, had been announced that it would be ending. Um, and I will tell you at the time, the Kennedy Space Center, the the entire landscape was dominated by the space shuttles, mm-hmm. right? So there was we did have a, a, a program called Launch Services Program that uh, launched our expendable uh, vehicles, and, and they really are one of the crown jewels of the agency. But by and large, the landscape... Um, at our center was dominated by the uh, space shuttle program. And and so everything from um, our workforce to uh, paying the utility bills was all funded through the uh, space shuttle program. Mm. And so, you know, in, in some of my positions in private industry, I'd worked, I mentioned business development, I worked on bid and proposal. Um, and what I enjoyed about that was um, the ability to see things differently, like um, cr- being more creative. You're not just doing, you know, you're not just processing the next payload, you're not just processing the next um, uh, shuttle payload or the next uh, shuttle vehicle for launch. Like, what what is going to be in the future? So, as, as we knew the shuttle program was going to be um, changing, and the next program at that time was uh, Constellation, um, and that was going to be the next um, launch, big launch vehicle uh, mm-hmm. for NASA to bring us um, back to the moon at the time. Um, but, but they did not need near the facilities or the assets or the capabilities that it took to um, support the uh, 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 shuttle program. Mm. And so what were we going to do with all of these um, assets, uh, facilities, and capabilities? So one of the things that I, I, I did was when I looked around, I saw that um, people across the center had separate agreements with different commercial entities. and um, And with the facilities being available um, and the assets being available no longer needed by the shuttle program, what were we going to do with this? And 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 kind of simply you have a, a couple choices, right? You could just let them be and rust and 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 rot. We didn't have the money to maintain them um, once a pro, uh, pro shuttle program was ending. Um, you could demolish them. Or thirdly, we had some um, enabling legislation in Congress that said we were supposed to enable the commercial industry. Mm. Um, so took a tact, and, and I mean, it, it wasn't, uh, I wouldn't say it was just me, but there was a couple people across the center that said, um, and, and our master, we had a master planning group who started asking some questions, started putting together a plan. Um, we had some other folks who who uh, joined in the, the the crowd, and we started saying, why can't we enable the commercial industry more? And instead of having our facilities rust and fall down or demolish them, let's see if there's any interest uh, in the commercial industry. So back in uh, 2010 was our first, what we called our notice of availability, where we detailed a list and put it out um, on the Fed biz ops and said, hey, is there anybody in the commercial industry that would be interested in utilizing any of these assets and facilities? And we got a tremendous uh, response um, from the uh, uh, commercial uh, aerospace industry. Um, One of the first agreements uh, that we did was uh, our orbiter processing facility. We had three OPFs, we call them. And um, as the shuttles uh, were dwindling down and we were um, sending them to the uh, museums and visitor centers, uh, we didn't need three. Um, And so we um, uh, listed that um, OPF, and that was one of our first agreements that we put in place. And today, um, that is where Boeing Starliner is um, uh, uh, 
manufactured, all the pieces put on it, integrated, um, tested, uh, and fueled, and it will be what um, the second provider carrying our astronauts to the International Space Station. So looking back now, that was super brilliant uh, uh, <laughs> that we did that. The other big example was um, our launch pad, Launch Complex 39A, which, of course, was a very historic launch pad, mm -hmm. launched Apollo missions, launched um, uh, many shuttle missions, um, but we didn't need two pads. Um, in our future, we only needed one. And I will tell you, there was a lot of folks who were like, we should not give away that pad. We should <laughs> keep it. We might need it 30 years from now. I could I could tell you stories about um, perspectives of people who wanted to hold on to everything. Mm. Um, and we uh, put that out. We uh, issued a, uh, uh, we had listed that on our notice of availability. We went through a announcement for a proposal and a selection process. And so today you have SpaceX uh, operating off that pad. And of course, that's where our commercial crew program launches our astronauts to and from the International Space Station. They've launched private astronauts missions from there. They've done dozens and uh, they brought cargo to the International Space Station mm -hmm. uh, in addition to the many um, commercial missions that they um, support uh, and, and use that property. So again, looking back now, I can't imagine a landscape at the Kennedy Space Center where we don't have SpaceX operating, launching our crew Boeing, their Starliner, operating out of our, um, uh, you know, out of our, uh, the old OPF, uh, uh, one of our OPFs. The other two, we ended up uh, uh, doing an agreement with, um, uh, for the X-37 program. Um, and so, uh, you know, it, it's been a long story. We started with facilities. We ran out of facilities. Uh, then we started with land, um, offering up land to commercial entities. Uh, and again, if you come to the Kennedy Space Center today, the landscape is tremendously changed from what it was uh, back in my father's day and from what it was, as you mentioned, uh, back in 2007, um, it is uh, very robust. It's vibrant. There's a it's a hubbub of activity. I would say one of our biggest problems now is um, the workforce, and people are stealing that uh, highly skilled workforce uh, from each other uh -huh. back and forth. Yeah. Where you know back in at the end of the shuttle program, it wasn't that way. So very very um, pleased with how um, where we are today at our uh, multi-user spaceport. Uh, we say we're the premier multi-user spaceport in the nation and work very, very closely with our um, Space Force partners across the river. They've got a number of launch pads and a number of uh, different providers operating out of there. And so collectively, uh, we have to work together. So it's a big it's a big change and it's happened a lot quicker than we thought it would. We, we, <laughs> we, we had our vision. Uh, we put it in our master plan back in um, 20, uh, 2010, 2012, I think is when we got it approved by the agency. And here we are a decade later. We thought it would take us 20, 20, 20 years to get to the point where we're at today, but um, we achieved it just, and, and, and there, you know, as you know, the commercial uh, industry has just um, expanded and it just exploded uh, over the last uh, 10 years as well. So it was right time. Uh, and and now we have a, a different landscape here. Yeah, you seem to have a, a, a lot of pride. And I think rightfully so, because the the anticipation for what the Kennedy Space Center would look like, I feel like, you know, I, I, I would have, ex I, I would expect exactly what you reported. Some folks just kind of wanted to hold on to the past. But 
the the idea is that Kennedy needed to change. And you know, as you look as you look from your your tenure as the deputy director from 2007 to 2021, I mean, that's to me, it's just an an enormous difference in what Kennedy looked like. I mean, all the, it seems like all the facilities changed. You know, there's just this this giant commercial landscape, but. Do you look back on it with a certain level of, you know, I, I feel like I feel like the answer is yes here, but a certain level of pride in what you and and the the Kennedy team were able to achieve in such a short period of time. Uh, a- absolutely, and I and I will say, um, I'll just add a couple things uh, mm-hmm. there. I think um, allowing people to ask questions and and you know one of the things coming into NASA as a as an outsider if you will I asked a lot of questions about why do we do things this way why are we um you know why is our process set up like this why is our policy set up like that and having people ask questions you know questioning why we are doing certain things really is um, really is challenging but I think that in of causes innovation so I didn't mention you know I talked facilities and land and you know assets but one of the biggest things we did and that we challenged our team to do is we have got to change our processes right if if um, uh, it, 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 we could have the field and the and the customers could come, but if we make it so difficult and so bureaucratic for them to operate, they're not going to continue to operate here. So we challenged um, the team across the board: how could we make it simpler for? Our customers, um, our those commercial um, providers that were coming here. So we we reduced our. We took a hard look at our safety requirements and um, what we as a uh, NASA as an agency were putting on top of. Um, uh, companies that were operating out of here that ex- far exceeded OSHA, and we didn't need to have all of these this bureaucracy on top of bureaucracy. So mm-hmm. we looked at reducing um, reducing as as much as possible. I talked about the front door. You know, having somebody try to find the right person at Kennedy um, to talk to about you know if you wanted to operate out here was very difficult to navigate. But having a front door. Um, consolidated in a in a, a, a central office, our center planning and and um, development office, and so we got you know we got lawyers, we have um, technical folks, we have um, people who are familiar with the customer, we have all of these people who are focused on that commercial provider coming in was was um, I think again pivotal to to making us um, as successful as we are today so it took like a whole team of people it took a whole different way of thinking it took a whole way of challenging people to be more innovative to achieve this vision of a multi-user spaceport and so yes uh, I, I am very very proud of the team um, that have really uh, made it happen excellent excellent I want to I want to talk about that next step though so so tell me about when the opportunity opportunity to become center director, start up becoming a reality, and your um, thought process behind thinking, am I ready to be the director of Kennedy? So, you know, I had the privilege of working for um, two uh, center directors as their deputy, uh, Bill Parsons and uh, Bob Cabana. And I got to tell you, so Bob, I think, 
is was very, very close. I think his record might have been broken by another Senate director, but uh, uh, he was the longest serving uh, Senate director uh, in NASA history. And I think he was uh, here at Kennedy for uh, a little over 12 years. And so for me, you know, I'm, I'm, I was perfectly happy um, as the deputy. I, I do recognize there's a big difference between being the deputy and the um, director itself. Um, but I, I felt very privileged. I had seen this huge change at the Kennedy Space Center. Um, uh, Bob was a great boss, a great, uh, uh, a great mentor, and I think he was looking. Uh, he was looking to retire, but you know, I was kind of thinking, I'm not very far behind you um, in terms of uh, retirement. And he mm. he wanted to to still be here when we flew um, Artemis um, and maybe the crew on Artemis uh, going back on our journey to the moon. I think that was kind of his um, uh, the thing in his mind that he was still. Um, wanting to achieve as one of his accomplishments. Um, But then, uh, you know, he, uh, the administration changed. Bill Nelson became the administrator and Bill tapped Bob on the uh, shoulder and asked him to come up and be the uh, number one civil servant as the associate administrator. Mm -hmm. And this happened very fast. It was like over a weekend. Um, (laughs) And, and, so I was acting uh, at the time. And so um, I, I would say, you know, when you work as a deputy for 12 or something years uh, under, again, a, a great uh, boss like Bob Cabana, you're always kind of thinking I, I was able to experience a whole lot of things. I don't think there was much uh, new that I could experience. Um, so I think I was prepared because I had been um, the deputy so long and had seen so much and gone through everything from the, you know, the cancellation of the Constellation program to the, you know, achievement of the multi-user spaceport to the reorganization to change in administration. So I think I was fairly prepared for it. Mm-hmm. It just happened so quick. Um, and w- and then when I was acting and then um, as uh, uh, Senator Nelson um uh, appointed me as a center director, I think about a month uh, later. Um, I I did feel, I would say I did feel prepared. Um, and also I knew that we had one of the best leadership teams in the agency here at the Kennedy Space Center. These are people that um, I knew, I had learned from, I had kind of grown up in my NASA uh, journey with. I understood their issues and their problems, and I felt truly, truly supported by them. So I think having that leadership, that excellent leadership team with that excellent support um, is really what made the transition for me um, pretty easy, Mm. um, I would say. Um, uh, And and I would also say that um, a year in, um, it is different when you are the the person making the uh, uh, when you're making the decision. It's different than than your role as a deputy where you're really advising someone. I used to uh, people would come up with me, come up to me uh, many times afterwards and they'd say, so uh, how do you like it? And I would jokingly say, um, well, you know, it's uh, might even be easier because I'm the one who gets to make the decision. I don't have to convince somebody else to make the decision. <laughs> and I say that in, uh, in kind of jest, but right. um, I think I was prepared, as I said. Excellent. Excellent. So, so tell me about that. So good to know that your feelings going into it were, were, were you felt as prepared as, as you possibly could be. Looking back at your first year and what you accomplished, what, uh, what are some of the key things that come to mind after now being there for more than a year? So, you know, we, we, 
we're an operations center here at the Kennedy Space Center, and I look back at all the um, missions that we continue to accomplish, you know, getting um, crew uh, to the International Space Station and back safely. Um, very, very proud of that team. Uh, the launch of um, uh, the, are all of the science missions that we have launched and, and successfully put those uh, in, in orbit, including uh, Mars 2020. Um, very, very proud of that. Um, where we are, the biggest thing that we have in front of us, Artemis 1, and trying to get that um, vehicle. You know, it all comes together here at the Kennedy Space Center. Mm-hmm. You know, the Exploration Ground Systems team that we have has to take that Orion space capsule, that SLS core stage, put the um, uh, boosters uh, 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 mounted on the mobile launcher, um, put it all together, um, test it, integrate it, um, retest it, um, repair it, um, and and it takes a whole team of people to do that. So I think I'm most proud of what our team has um accomplished in terms of the mission over the past year. I'm really looking forward to Artemis 1 launching in the next uh, month or so. Mm-hmm. Um, so that that will be that will be sort of the capstone. And, and again, I would say um, we persevered even though it, we were still in a pandemic and for the most part um, there was a uh, virtual workforce as well as one that had to come on center and operate. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, and then, of course, supporting you know all our partners. You know, I we have uh, ninety partnerships, over two hundred fifty agreements, and there's no shortage of people um, knocking at our door, wanting to you know <laughs> ha- have a part of KSC. So I think you know all that continuing on uh, with the uh, excellent leadership team. I think it all you know those are the things I'm most proud of. So looking forward, right? You got uh, you got your first year under your belt. You said, of course, Artemis one right around the corner. Um, but what what stands out to me is I don't I don't see any slowdown necessarily of this continued commercialization and the continued efforts of. Um, future Artemis missions, right? This Artemis 1 is just the first and then you're going to have you're going to have more at the Kennedy Space Center. You have exploration ground systems and the support network there at the facilities at Kennedy in order to support moon missions. So things are are moving and and to me they seem to be moving quickly. Um in terms of what you hope for in your tenure as director and how you hope to navigate Kennedy through the future uh with, you know, the, we're going to the moon, continued commercialization. It's a it's a very dynamic dynamic and exciting time. What are some of your key goals going into these next couple of years? So I, we started out by saying how busy, uh, what a <laughs> whirlwind it's been. So I don't see any of that um, activity decreasing in the next couple of years. You know, absolutely, Artemis One has got to launch and it's got to be uh, successful. Uh, you know, our team will be, um, we'll all be biting our nails until it splashes down safely uh, in the Pacific Ocean, um, you know, s- some sometime after it launches. So even though it'll launch, uh, we'll still be uh, worried about it. And then you mentioned Artemis II, putting putting crew on that vehicle uh, after one test flight, you know, we're going to have to make sure we, we do everything we can to make sure that that crew is safe as it as they take their journey around the moon. And then, of course, Artemis III is uh, really going to be the big uh, uh, the big explosion, I think, across the nation when we actually uh, put boots uh, back on the moon for the first time in um, 50, uh, uh, 50 years. Um, and that's, that's going to take a whole bunch of partners to make that happen. Um, and we're 
right dead in the middle of making that happen. So we've got to make sure our NASA programs, our NASA, uh, strictly NASA programs, we continue to deliver on all that we, that the agency has entrusted us to do. And not just the human side, we still got our crews going to and from the space station, and we still have our science missions, our really important um, planetary and Earth science missions um, to make sure that um, we are uh, we are fulfilling what we told the agency we were going to do. All of these take partners, and the partnerships I I continue to see is um, increasing as we go forward. You know, last year we supported 31 launches uh, from the Space Coast. This year on the manifest is something like 65 launches. Um, I see within the next couple years we will be well over uh, over 100 launches, and together. My team at uh, Kennedy Space Center, along with the Space Force, support every single launch in some capacity. So when you think about going from, and by the way, 31 was the most launches in decades uh, out here at the Space Coast. So when you think about going to um, that amount of launches to over 100, when you have a highly um, uh, uh, dependent team, we've got to make sure that our our workforce, our capacity, our capabilities to provide the 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 fuel, the the uh, the IT resources, all, all of the things that it takes to make a, a partner and or NASA program successful, we've got to ensure that our capability and capacity is there to support that. And I will tell you, Artemis is challenging a bunch of those uh, uh, capabilities. You know, it uses more GN2 than the Saturn did, by far and away for a much longer uh, period of time. So we've got to ensure that all of our um, systems and subsystems are um, sized correctly and that they have enough capabilities such that, you know, when you're talking hundred or hundreds of launches, you're talking a launch uh, maybe every other day. So we've got to make sure that we have the um, uh, right capabilities in place. So that that is some of the things that I'm looking forward to and some of the goals uh, as we're going forward. The, the other thing that, that we see is um, many of the um, uh, many of our uh, customers and stakeholders are starting to move some of their processing and supply chain operations closer to the launch head. So we're seeing consolidation um, from several of the companies. A couple of I'll mention here. Um, you know, SpaceX consolidating their um, their Starship operations so that will be um, they're replicating a Bochica out at the Roberts Road facility and they're building a tower. Um, at 39A, where they hope to uh, launch their starships from. But that consolidating of the operations, it's just much more efficient mm. um, for them to be able to launch. Bo- Blue Origin's doing the same thing. They, you know, they, If you've been to Kennedy, they have huge facilities all over, and they're consolidating their operations here in Florida. Artemis itself... Um, the uh, SLS team has determined that um, it it is far more efficient to process some of their um, doing some of their engine work here closer to the launch head. Um, some of their um, some of their upper stage work it's it's easier to have done here at our Kennedy Space Center facility than it is to do it elsewhere and then drag it halfway across a uh, country. Mm-hmm. So. I see that consolidation uh, of operations. I see that continuing uh, in the future. So much so, you know, um, you know, we're trying to up our. People are asking us for, you know, all kinds of things, ranging from office space to more payload processing facilities to more um, capability in our labs to support their operations that we have out here. So I see the 
um, nexus of launch operations just continuing and we as a center have to ensure that our workforce and our capabilities um, match match that. So we don't want to be the one that ever disappoints or is a reason somebody can't launch. Excellent. I, I um, Jen and I was so happy to talk to you and, and, and of course, very recently, Vanessa Weich. And I think the theme at NASA is that it's just we're just continuing to move fast. We're continuing to grow. There's a lot of exciting things in our future. And to hear that across multiple centers that we're, we're trying to build up to support and anticipate something that's um, so so big in our future, I think, to me, is, is probably one of the most exciting things. So, Janet Petro, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. It's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you and, and learn about your and and about uh, leadership and what it took to get you to where you are. Congratulations on your first year and all the best of luck in the future. Thank you, Gary. And I'll say I think I have the best job in the world and I'm at the uh, (laughs) most vibrant and robust and the best uh, time in history to be right here at the Kennedy Space Center. Thank you for your uh, questions and enjoyed talking with you as well. Hey, thanks for sticking around. It was an absolute pleasure to get to talk to Janet Petro today and learn everything about uh, what got her to where she is as the center director of the Kennedy Space Center. Lots of changes down there and a lot to look forward into the future. Uh, it's a very, very dynamic time. You can go to nasa.gov Kennedy to learn uh, about everything that's going on down in Florida. We're one of many NASA podcasts across the agency. You can check uh, us out at nasa.gov slash podcast, as well as the other podcast. Uh, We have all of our episodes listed at that website, and you can listen to any of them in no particular order there. Um, You can talk to us on social media as well. We are on the NASA Johnson Space Center pages of Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Just use the hashtag AskNASA on your favorite platform to submit an idea for the show or maybe ask a question. Make sure to mention it's for us at Houston. We have a podcast. This episode was recorded on July 27th, 2022. Thanks to Will Flato, Pat Ryan, Heidi Lavelle, Belinda Polito, and Jaden Jennings. And of course, thanks again to Janet Petro for taking the time to come on the show. Give us a rating and feedback on whatever platform you are listening to us on and tell us what you think of our podcast. We'll be back next week.